God. <clears throat> well, how many of you have this nice Jewish book with you? Very good. I'm not so much interested in what theologians of history have said about issues as I am about what God said about issues. And if you want to know what God said, all you got to do is just read the book. And so if you've got the book with you, then you have the opportunity to learn God's Word and God's will. Uh, yes, indeed, some people have been amazed at how Jewish Jesus actually is. Many Christians didn't know that he was Jewish. <clears throat> some thought that he was maybe a Jew when he was living on the earth, but he resurrected a Roman Catholic. <clears throat> and then there was the Roman Catholic lady who heard one of my teachings about the Jewishness of Jesus, uh, a sermon which I start out by beginning by saying, how many of you in this audience has a very close personal Jewish friend? Don't get a whole lot of hands raised. And then I continue to say, well, I want to talk to you for the next 45 minutes about a very close personal Jewish friend of mine, and his name is Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Christ. Well, at any rate, she heard that lecture, and after that, she came up and said, well, I guess after all you've said, we have to conclude that, well, yeah, okay, Jesus was Jewish, but surely not the Holy Mother. <laughs> well, that's the extent of our ignorance in Christianity. Um, you know, I think if Paul were living today, <clears throat> he probably would write something like this to the church. Brethren, I would not have you to be ignorant that blindness in part has happened unto the church. That's a good place to say amen. Because the church has been woefully ignorant, we've been robbed of the heritage of our faith. So anyway, I want to share a message with you this morning um, that Jim Jackson has asked me to share to this audience. And I'm going to entitle it, well, I have two titles. The one that I will use, that I, that I use for it because I like the alliteration. We academics kind of like those things. Uh, the title, Supersessionism, The Slippery Slope of Shame. How do you like that alliteration? Does that? But for the sake of this tape, and we'll begin the tape after I say this. The title of the message is, God's Answer to Replacement Theology. God's Answer to Replacement Theology. <clears throat> there was a flight going across the Atlantic some time ago and there were three elderly gentlemen seated together in a row and they were beginning to discuss some of the histories of their their nations. One of them was French, the other one was a Russian, and the third one was a, a Muslim from the Middle East. And they were talking about the bygone eras of their societies and all the greatness that they had experienced of, in France and Russia and of course in the realm of the Muslims. And so they began to wonder among themselves, well, when will we ever go back to those glorious times when our, when our nations and our civilizations and our, our societies were so great and so powerful in the world? So they decided among themselves, well, the best thing for us to do if we want to find out when this is going to happen, we'll just ask God. 
So they asked God, and the Frenchman went first. He says, Viva la France. When will France be restored to the glory days of Napoleon? And God took out his calendar and looked at it. He said, well, we have that scheduled to take place in the year 2122. So the Frenchman was very crestfallen. He reached in his back pocket and he pulled out the French national flag and began to wipe the tears from his eyes. And he said, well, I'm not going to live to see that day. It's how sad. Then the Russian says to God, well, when will, when will Mother Russia be restored to the glory days of Peter the Great? And God said, well, let's see. We have that schedule to happen in the year 2228. He said, oh, what a pity, what a pity. It will not happen in my lifetime. And then the Muslim from the Middle East says, well, when are we going to drive all these Jews out of Palestine and restore this land to the glory days of Saladin? God says to him, I have really bad news for you. That's not going to happen in my lifetime. <laughs> God's answer to replacement theology Taking our text from Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 10, where the scripture says, and I'm reading, by the way, from the King James Version, the version which came to us at Mount Sinai, later to be translated into Hebrew and Greek. Romans chapter 2, verses 7 and 10. To them who by patient continuance in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, eternal life. But glory, honor, and peace to every man that worketh good, to the Jew first and also to the Gentile. Father, we thank you for our opportunity to gather in this assembly to study together in your word. So we invite the anointing of your Holy Spirit to come upon both speaker and hearer as we explore together and as we interact around your sacred word and around this important subject. May our minds be in tune with you and may you speak a personal word of insight into the life of every single believer present here today in Christ's name. Amen. Supersessionism or replacement theology has been a doctrine, a teaching that has characterized the Christian church for upwards of 18 to 19 centuries now. Supersessionism is the idea that says that Christianity has forever replaced Judaism in the economy of God's salvation. And the corollary of it is that Christians have forever replaced Jews in the economy of God's salvation. One of the elements of replacement theology or supersessionism is theological supersessionism. 
again, which says that Christianity has replaced Judaism. The second element of it is anthropological supersessionism, which says that Christians have replaced Jews in God's plan for the ages. Both of these ideas are direct violations of two divine imperatives from the scriptures, one of which comes from the lips of Jesus himself and the second of which comes from the pen of the Apostle Paul. Two divine commandments that the church has systematically and unrelentingly violated over the past 19 centuries to such a degree that the doctrine of replacement theology has become a cornerstone of Christian theology. What are those two divine imperatives? The first one that fell from the lips of Jesus Christ himself was this imperative. He said, think not. (laughs) The second divine imperative that came from the pen of the Apostle Paul was this commandment. Boast not. Think not, boast not. Two divine imperatives, commands from God himself through the person of the word Jesus and through the apostle to the Gentiles, Paul, the man that God called to bring God's light to the nations. Well, let's look at these two divine imperatives and let's see how the church has violated these commandments and therefore has created an environment which has been very debilitating to the church itself, first of all. It has been an insidious poison that has caused the church to drift far away from its moorings in the faith of Jesus and the apostle of the apostles and to be set adrift in a maelstrom of human tradition that is not connected to the pages of Holy Scripture and is therefore very foreign to what Jesus taught and what the apostles taught. First of these is the imperative think not and it is recorded in Matthew's Gospel chapter seven, chapter 5 verses 17 and 18. Matthew's Gospel chapter 5 verses 17 and 18. Jesus said these words, Think not that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I have not come to destroy but to fulfill. For until heaven and earth pass away, not one jot or one tittle shall in any wise pass from the law until all be fulfilled. Now I looked out the window this morning and certainly I discovered that heaven and earth had not passed away. We are still here. And because we are still here, then this word applies. Heaven and earth will not pass away until all has been fulfilled. Nothing will pass away from the law. So Jesus says this. If you 
translated in a looser way from the Greek, more in the vernacular, you could say that he's saying, don't even begin to think that I have come to destroy the law or the prophets. I've not come to destroy, but to fulfill. Jesus himself says in the very opening part of the Sermon on the Mount, the greatest sermon that was ever preached in the history of humanity, don't even begin to think that I have come to destroy what God has been doing among his covenant chosen people for 1,500 years and for 2,000 years going back to the time of Father Abraham. I have not come to destroy what God has been doing. I have come rather to fulfill. And by the word, the word fulfill just simply means to feel full. You don't have to have a PhD to understand that. Fulfill means to fill full. So Jesus came to fill everything that God had been doing and dealing with the covenant people of Israel, which was called the Law and the Prophets, which we call the Tanakh, the Hebrew Scriptures. We Christians call it the Old Testament. He said, I came to fill it full. So here's the command, the imperative. Think not. And the problem with the Christian church has been that ever since Jesus said that, We've been doing exactly what he said not to do. We've been thinking. <laughs> Systematic theologians have been thinking and they've been thinking and they've been thinking of ways to explain away the obvious truth of what Jesus specifically and unequivocally says in this passage of Holy Scripture. Jesus did not come to destroy Judaism. Jesus was a Jew and he never changed his religion. Jesus not only was a Jew, but he was a Torah observant Jew. He kept every single one of the commandments that God had given in the Torah. Some would say, well, how can you prove that? It's very simple. John says in the first epistle of John that sin is the transgression of the law. If you break the law, you are a sinner. That's the definition of sin. So if Jesus had broken one of the commandments of the law, Jesus would have been a sinner. And if Jesus had been a sinner, he could not have been a savior. But we have this testimony in In him was no sin, neither was guile or deceit found in his mouth. He knew no sin. So Jesus was entirely observant of the commandments of God. Now, either he was observant as a Torah observant Jew, or Jesus was a liar. And if he was a liar, he was a sinner. And if he was a sinner, he was no savior. Listen to the words of Jesus himself. If you love me, keep my commandments even as I have loved my Father and have kept his commandments. So Jesus kept every one of the Father's commandments. He was a Torah observant Jew. Jesus was not a radical, a revolutionary who was seeking to break away from the faith of his fathers according to the flesh. 
He was reared by a Torah observant family who taught him in their home and in the synagogue and in the temple the things concerning the law of Moses, the law of God, the Torah, the teachings of Holy Scripture. The Bible even tells us that, that Jesus grew as a child in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. So he had to be taught, and he was taught. And he was taught in that environment a very great and solid and observant and devout Jewish family. When Jesus began to effect the work that God had called him to do, and he went forth in the power of the Spirit, proclaiming the kingdom of God, Jesus was not doing anything revolutionarily new. He was rather just carrying on what God had been doing for 4,000 years and for 2,000 years since Abraham and for 1,500 years since Sinai. We often try to think of all these things that we have in Christianity that are brand new. Some Christians think that grace was something that was invented when Jesus came. There wasn't any such thing as grace before. They think that all the Old Testament was law and all the New Testament is grace. But in reality, there is grace in the law and there is law in grace. We've made this dichotomy, again, we theologians have been thinking, and we've made this dichotomy between law and grace, which doesn't exist. And we've tried to say that God came along through Jesus, and he finally said to himself, you know, I've been messing around trying to get this law stuff to work for about 1,500 years now, and let's face it, this is just not going to work. So let's try and see if we can come up with something else. Can you imagine God sitting in heaven, the omniscient God, sitting in heaven, having this kind of an, a, a discussion with himself? Well, we tried this law stuff. Oh, drat. It didn't work. Foiled again. The devil's foiled me again. So... What am I going to do? And you see God up there in heaven wringing his hands. Oh, what am I going to do? What am I going to do? Like as if he didn't know from the foundation of the earth that the lamb was slain from the foundation of the earth. And so Jesus is sitting on his right hand. These are these visions everybody has of the heavenlies. And suddenly Jesus says, I'll tell you what, Dad, how about letting me go down there and see if I can do something with that crazy bunch of people. And the father says, no, 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 I don't want to do that. that those people are crazy. They're, they might even kill you. And he says, oh, please, let me go. Well, let's give it a try and see what happens. Doesn't that sound absurd? It is absurd. It's insane that to think that God didn't know what he was doing for 4,000 years. The reality is there's continuity between what God is doing over the ages and that history is rectilinear in nature. It's a straight line moving from a beginning of creation to an end in the consummation of the age and it's going along a path that God has predetermined. So when Jesus came, he came to fulfill, to feel full. And in reality, as Martin Buber said, Jesus' movement in the earliest days of Jesus and the apostles was a radical call to going back to doing the principles of the Torah. 
So Jesus came to return the Torah to its original intent. Men had found inventive and ingenious ways of circumventing the Torah to come up with what they wanted. They had added things on that God didn't require and they'd taken things away that God did require. It's an answer to the old question in scripture, will a man be more righteous than God? And the answer is, yeah, he sure will. He'll put requirements on you that God doesn't require of you. That's the reason why we've got Baptist legalism and Methodist legalism and Presbyterian legalism and charismatic legalism. And we all thought legalism was Jewish, didn't we? Hmm, isn't that interesting? Well, Jesus came to restore and to renew and to reform and to fill things, fill all things with all things by the power of the Holy Spirit. We think of the gospel as being something brand new. Jesus created this idea of the gospel. Whoa, that sounds really wonderful. That's a real Christian thing. But the same scriptures that I'm reading from tell you in the book of Galatians that the gospel was preached to Abraham. And it tells you in the book of Hebrews chapter 4 that the gospel, the same gospel, was preached to the Jewish people in the the desert. And they didn't mix faith with the hearing of the gospel. What was the gospel? The good news. It's the everlasting gospel. I've even heard people say there's no grace in the Old Testament. Well, if there is, how in the world did Noah find grace in the eyes of the Lord if there's no grace in the Old Testament? Others have said, well, there's no faith in the Old Testament. You can't have faith when you have the law present. There's no faith in the Old Testament. Well, if that's the case, I want somebody to answer me the question of why we have one chapter in our Christian scriptures that we call the roll call of faith, and there is not one Christian name mentioned in the whole chapter. No faith in the Old Testament. You see, everything continues to move forward. The truth is we owe everything that we have as Christians that we value to the Jewish people. Our book is a Jewish book. Yeah, we hijacked it. And we used it for our purposes. We kind of did like Thomas Jefferson did. We went through and cut out certain passages so that we could save all of the blessings for the church and leave all the cursings for the Jews. But we hijacked the book. It's our, it, it is our book as well. It's, it's God's book, so therefore it belongs to all of God's children. We're God's children, so it belongs to us as well. But that's where we got it from. Even our understanding of God we got from the Jews. If you're from Gentile origins today, genetically, if it weren't for the Jewish people, you'd still be running around worshiping planets and trees. And worse than that, you'd be worshiping emperors. That's That's what we came from, Gentiles came from. So our understanding of God comes from the Jewish people. Was Jesus trying to destroy everything that existed before that and start something totally new? No, he's just bringing it into a broader and brighter dimension, adding the new covenant of faith by virtue of his own sacrifice of his own blood to forever perfect what God had been working on with the Jewish people for 4,000 years. He didn't come to start a new religion. 
Jesus returned it to its original intent. He said, by your traditions, you've made void the word of God. What did they make void? The Torah, the Hebrew scriptures, tradition. They drifted away from the intent of God's word. That's why we have within the Sermon on the Mount what we call the antitheses. Where Jesus said, you have heard it said, but I say. And in every single case, Jesus takes the commandment of the Torah back to its original intent and emphasizes the heart issue that God was concerned about from the very beginning. See, God wasn't concerned with the physical issue nearly as much as he was concerned with the heart issue. That's why he told Moses, what I'm really looking for is circumcision of the heart. That's why he told Jeremiah the same thing, that I'm looking for circumcision of the heart. Physical circumcision has no value unless there exists a circumcised heart. So that's what God was emphasizing. Jesus even said, you've heard it say, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Some of our theologians have said, well, that proves that the Bible's not accurate because that's not written anywhere in the Old Testament. Jesus didn't say that it was written in the Old Testament. He just said, you've heard it said. Well, where did they hear it said? They heard it said in the Qumran community, which said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. So he knew what he was talking about, in spite of the fact that many of our modern theologians think that he didn't know what he was talking about. But anyway, Jesus said, I say to you, love your enemies. So this is the intent of God's command to love, it's to love everybody without reservation, even your enemies. He said, you've heard it said, don't commit adultery. I said, don't lust in your heart. See, it's a heart issue. So Jesus is going back to the original intent of the Torah, and he is injecting it with life coming from the very words of life that he's speaking and then he is telling his disciples that the Holy Spirit that has been with you through these generations speaking the words of truth into your heart is now going to become resident inside you so therefore it's necessary that I go away so that I can send this other comforter to you, the Holy Spirit, who will now lead you and guide you into truth from the inside out rather than from the outside in. That's the advantage of the new covenant. We have the Holy Spirit now resident leading us from the inside. Well, the unfortunate thing that happened is this idea that Jesus came to destroy the law and the prophets, that Jesus came to destroy Judaism, has separated the church for centuries from the religion of Jesus himself from the faith of Jesus and the faith of the apostles. Jesus said it in John chapter 4, verse 22. Salvation is from the Jews. Even the salvation that Christians around the world rejoice in, that they have come into relationship with the living God through the person of Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit, that salvation is from the Jews. So, it's important for us to realize that from the earliest days, there was no thought 
much less action on the part of Jesus and the apostles to separate the church from its biblically Hebraic heritage and to replace what God had been doing for all those centuries among the Jewish people with a totally new religion. A new religion called Christianity. Jesus said, we know what we worship. Salvation is from the Jews. Paul, whom some think maybe created Gentile Christianity. Listen to what he said toward the end of his career. He said, I am a Pharisee. Now, if he'd been giving a proper testimony in a Christian church today, he would have said, you know, I used to be one of those old terrible Pharisees. But one day God converted me and made a Christian out of me. Well, Paul didn't get converted on the road to Damascus. God just turned him around and took the zeal for the law, for the word of God that he had in his heart and caused him to recognize that that zeal was misdirected and now he needed to turn it into a different direction and he became the greatest missionary of history. But he still was a Jew. And he said, I am a Pharisee. <laughs> Paul even went so far as to say that after the way that they call a sect, so worship I the God of my fathers, believing all things that are written in the law and the prophets. See, Paul wasn't creating a new Bible. He wasn't doing away with that old Bible, as it's called in West Texas, the old Bible. He wasn't looking for an adequate sarcophagus in which to entomb a lifeless, failed religion called Judaism. And it was, by, by the way, called Judaism in that time frame. You can actually read the word Judaism in the Greek New Text, text of the New Testament. So what was that? It was the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob as it had been manifested in the Law and the Prophets. All through the Tanakh, that was what Jesus and Paul practiced. Paul said he believed everything that was written in the Law and the Prophets. But you see, there was something very interesting going on in the first century. There was no such thing as a monolithic Judaism. There were many Judaisms. There was Pharisaic Judaism, Sadducean Judaism, Herodian Judaism, Qumran Community Judaism, Essene Judaism, and then there arose a sect among the Jews that came to be called the Way, which was the Jesus Judaism. The Way. There's a reason why they called it the Way. Because the Way idea comes from the term halacha in Hebrew, which means the way in which we should walk. It's a very prominent term in rabbinic thought and was also very prominent in the 400 years before the time of the coming of Jesus. So they just used the term, the way. They were called the Notzrim as well, the followers of the Netzer, which was God's uh, stem from the root of Jesse, Jesus himself. But they were connected to this Hebraic, this Jewish roots that had been established for all those centuries. 
So the church later on began to question all of this. There was no question in the mind of Jesus. There was no question in the mind of Paul. There was no question in the mind of James. There was no question in the mind of John. You just read the New Testament scriptures and it's very clear. There is no supersessionism, no replacement theology taught by Jesus or the apostles. Indeed, instead of teaching replacement or displacement theology, they teach continuity. There is absolute continuity with the biblical faith. Well, the church began to drift away from that. As the door of faith swung open to the Gentiles, the Gentiles came in, accepted faith, believed in Jesus, but they brought with them all the stuff from the Gentile cultures. All the pagan thoughts and ideas, they brought those along with them, and eventually the church brought in leaders who were converted Neoplatonist philosophers coming strict, straight out of Plato's academy, if you please. And they tried to reconcile all of the philosophy of the Greek realm with this Hebraic understanding. And let me tell you something, friends, it can't be done. It's like trying to mix oil and water. One has to give place to the other. And the sad testimony has become over the centuries that Christian understanding today is more influenced by Greek philosophers than it is by Hebrew and Jewish prophets and apostles. That points out the reason why it is so important for us to go back to the faith of Jesus and the apostles. Find out where the church has gone astray. I would almost go quite as far as Father Edward Flannery who said some decades ago that an over-Hellenized, over-Latinized Christianity needs to be restored to the roots of its faith. It needs to experience a re-Judaization process to go back to its founding ideals. Well, the idea here has been that Christianity has replaced Judaism. And so we have, as a result of that, what we could call the proto-schism, the first great division that occurred when the church separated itself from the Jewish people, when Christianity separated itself from Judaism. We have this whole idea now of theology. Christianity, a religion of grace and faith and mercy and joy and peace has now forever replaced this religion called Judaism, which is a religion of judgment and wrath, and works, law, all of those harsh things. But you see, the problem with that is that theology never remains in the realm of theology. Eventually, it manifests itself in human beings. And then we come to the second area of replacement theology. It now no longer is theological supersessionism, it becomes anthropological supersessionism in which the church begins to say now that Christians have forever replaced the Jews in God's economy of salvation. If Christianity has replaced Judaism, then Judaism is expendable. We need to find some place to bury it. And the church hoped that that would be the case. Likewise, if now Christians have forever replaced the Jews in God's economy of salvation, 
then the Jews are expendable. And so systematically and unrelentingly over the centuries, the church sponsored or sat idly by while civil governments sought to bring about the systematic annihilation of the Jewish people. Total genocide was the effort. And when they couldn't kill all the Jews, finally someone like St. Augustine comes up with this wonderful idea, well, the Lord has allowed the Jews to continue to live. They should have all been killed and destroyed because they were the Christ killers and they were the ones that, that were disobedient to God and God should have just killed them all. But God decided, well, I'll tell you what I'll do. I'll let some of them live as a living memorial and testimony to what happens to people when they reject Jesus and reject Christianity. So therefore, they are the wandering Jews forever tormented and persecuted by the Christians. What a sad, sad idea. But this idea, replacement theology, comes from violating that second imperative, the one which we find in the words of Paul when he says, boast not against the natural branches. Boast not against the natural branches. And that's what he says in Romans 11. This is clear. It's a word to us as Gentiles. Romans 11, verse 18. Boast not against the natural branches. That's simple, isn't it? But from the time before Paul was, wrote this, see it was already happening when he wrote it, otherwise he wouldn't have written it. But since that time, the church has done nothing but boast against the natural branches. The church has said that Christians have replaced the Jews, that the Jews were an obdurate, hard-hearted people. Then they came to be called the Antichrist people. And then from that they became a subhuman species. They were now, as Jesus used this metaphor to describe the conduct of some of the leaders in Israel in his day, you're of the, your father the devil. Now all Jews are a demonized people. They're all of their father the devil. So they're all demonic. And ultimately, in the time of World War II and shortly before, the Jews became recognized as being vermin. Nothing more than something that's fit to be exterminated. That's pretty sad, isn't it? They started out as the chosen people of God and over time they became subhuman, demonized, and eventually vermin only awaiting the exterminator to come and wipe them all off the face of the earth for the benefit of all humankind. And my friends, that is an idea that came from the teaching of the fathers of the church. Oh, they didn't say that to that extreme, but that was... What was the logical conclusion to what they said? You take it to its logical conclusion, and that's where it ended up. 
It was a slippery slope. It started out with Judeophobia. There was a fear of Jews and Judaism and things Jewish that developed in the church. Why? Because the church was in competition with the missionaries from the Jews for converts in the area of the Mediterranean basin where the church was carrying the gospel. So there was a fear that was implanted in the hearts of the people. You need to be really careful. You've got to be afraid of these Jews and this Jewish stuff. It's really bad stuff. Then there arose anti-Judaism that came out of that. (coughs) This was a teaching against the faith or the religion of the Jewish people. And then finally it escalated to the point that it became anti-Semitism, teaching against the Jewish people themselves. (coughs) Started out with the Gospel of Thomas. You read the Gospel of Thomas, the apocryphal Gospel of Thomas, pseudepigraphal, I, I should say, And it has some strong attacks against Judaism and against the Jews. You come forward in history to Justin Martyr, who in his dialogue with Trypho, supposedly engages in this this dialogue with a Jewish person. One of the great scholars of history has said that it wasn't a dialogue with Trypho. It was simply the victor's monologue. Christianity by this time had gained power and control and began to put the Jewish people down. Not, a, not a, a dialogue, but a diatribe. You come forward to all the fathers like Origen and Tertullian, and these are the, the, the Antinicene fathers and their teachings with regard to the Jewish people, that the Jews were, all the curses were for the Jews and the blessings were for, for the church. And then finally you come up to a watershed moment at the time of Constantine and the Nicene Council in 325 where Constantine had written an edict or a letter to the leaders of the church where they were debating whether the church should continue to celebrate Passover as it had done for 300 years in the history of the church. And Constantine says, Let us now therefore have nothing more in common with these pitiful Jews, the murderers and parricides of our Lord. Therefore, this irregularity of Passover observance must be corrected. And at that moment in time, the church wrenched out of its Jewish moorings the foundational concept of the Christian faith, the foundational event of Christian faith, the time when Jesus hung on the cross of Calvary and they connected the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus with pagan festivals rather than with the Jewish roots of the festivals where it was connected from the beginning. They removed it from Passover and connected it with the pagan spring goddess festival. And so it's happened. It was so pervasive that when the King James Version was translated, the translators even were arrogant enough to take the word Passover out of the Greek and replace it with the word Easter in the book of Acts. Pretty sad. Well, John Chrysostom came along. He was called Chrysostom because the word Chrysostom meant golden mouth. But there were fool's gold in that mouth on occasion. Not always. He was a very eloquent preacher and teacher. But he taught strongly against the synagogue and against the Jewish people. And then you move forward. You come on to the Middle Ages. You come to the Crusades. And we think about the Crusades. And sometimes we think about in certain evangelical Christian circles about we want to have a great crusade. Well, the word crusade is loaded with all kinds of 
diabolical images to the Jewish people because the Crusades began supposedly to liberate Palestine from the infidels, the, the, the Muslims who had taken control of it. But one of the leaders came up with a brilliant idea. Why should we go thousands of miles to kill infidels when we have them living next door to us? So let's herd the Jews into their synagogues, lock the doors, set the synagogues on fire, burn men, women, and children alive in their synagogues while the leaders of the church go around the outside of the church in their clerical garments singing the songs of the church and rejoicing over the death of the Jews. And then we come to the Inquisition. You know, the Jews were always blamed for everything. They were even blamed for the, for the bubonic plague, the black death, because they weren't dying. Why weren't they dying? Because they had laws of cleanliness and purity. The Gentiles were living like pigs, sleeping with their pigs. So they had bubonic plague, and the Jews weren't getting it. So they said, well, the Jews didn't get it, so they must have poisoned all of our wells. So let's go kill the Jews. This was the echo of the cry that came out of the leaders of the church. Well, let's go kill the Jews. Let's go kill the Jews. Let's persecute the Jews. And it happened over and over and over and over again. You get into Europe, Eastern Europe. You get into all the pogroms, the systematic persecution of the Jewish people for centuries by Tsarist Russia in its fervor from the Eastern Orthodox Church. And it's a, it's a horrible story. It's, it's hair-raising. If you haven't read some of that history, please take the time to go read it. It'll, it'll op open your eyes and help you to understand a lot of things about the Jews and Judaism today. Then we come along with the German school of theologies that emerged in the 17th, 18th, 19th centuries based on the, some of the statements of Martin Luther. If you read some of the things that Martin Luther said towards the end of his career, it's pretty, pretty, pretty bad stuff, horrible stuff. See, Martin Luther, in his early part of his career, he was very philo-Semitic. He loved the Jewish people. Why did he love the Jewish people? He had a hook. He thought that Jesus was coming in his lifetime. And therefore, all the Jews had to be converted. And since he had received the understanding he had for the Reformation, he thought that all the Jews were going to be converted to Protestantism. And therefore, that would be the precursor, the setting of the stage for the coming of Jesus. And then when all the Jews didn't convert en masse to Protestantism... Luther said, burn their synagogues. If you find one on a road somewhere, kill him. Horrible stuff that he said. And so subsequently in later centuries, this became the foundation for some of the German theologians and even the German leaders to say, we do need to eliminate this scourge of humanity called the Jews. And that ended up, resulted in the Holocaust. There's where replacement theology in an anthropological form comes to its logical conclusion. And I would say to you as well that replacement theology in its logical form coming to its logical conclusion in a theological sense leads the church totally away from its biblical Hebraic foundations into a relativistic religion of total pluralism that is syncretized with all the rest of the world's religions where there are many paths to the one God and none is superior to the other. That's the ultimate end. If you take some of these concepts and ideas to their ultimate conclusion, 
you conclude that the Bible's nothing but a myth. Can't be trusted. Everything in here is mythological. You might as well be reading uh, Homer's Iliad or Odyssey or Virgil's Aeneid. Go back to the neo-pagan concepts of worshiping the polytheistic systems of ancient Greece, ancient Rome, ancient Babylon. You see, the only thing that keeps the world from being a Babylon is the fact that God put an Abraham in the middle of it. And he put the Jews in the middle of it to be the light, to lighten the nations. And then he brought believers from the Gentile realm, from the nations, among the Jewish people to become fellow citizens with them, to become engrafted into God's family tree of salvation and covenant relationship so that they in turn could carry the light of truth, the revelation of God's world, word to the entire world. This is God's purpose in bringing the light to the nations. Not that the nations would go into total darkness and be led away from everything that was truth, but rather that the Gentile light would permeate throughout the entire darkness of all of the earth and the knowledge of the glory of the Lord would cover the earth as the water covers the sea. That's God's intent. So, here we have it. Replacement theology. The violation of two divine imperatives. And we see the tragic results. Not only for the Jews, but also for the church. Because the church has been impoverished. We have been robbed by the events of history. We've been robbed from the richness of our heritage. And because we've been set adrift, we don't know who we are. Christian church suffers from an identity crisis because we've been ripped from the womb that bore us, that brought us into this faith. We've been torn from our Hebraic foundations, the Jewish roots of our faith. Well, when all of this finally reached its logical culmination and conclusion in the Holocaust, the corporate consciousness of the Western world was pricked. Even the secularists themselves were pricked in their hearts. And then we had to have begin with a, a reevaluation of this history of contempt, the teachings of contempt. And as a result of that, we have found Israel being restored as a nation, an absolute impossibility, but God brought it to pass, and he did it just like he'd predicted he would 2,500 years before the time that it happened. He caused a nation to be born in a day. It's a miracle. But you see, this is nothing unusual for the Jews. Because they've always, from the very beginning, experienced this 
thing called life from the dead. Life from the dead. The very beginnings of the Jewish people was a life from the dead experience. When an old man and an old woman who couldn't have children suddenly had one because of God's commandment and God's covenant. Abraham, Sarah conceived. Abraham and Sarah had a son. It was life from the dead. And so it was in 1948, again, life from the dead. Paul describes this in Romans 11, that when the Jewish people come to understand and recognize the Messiah when he comes, it'll be another life from the dead experience. Ezekiel 37 talks about this life from the dead experience. It's this whole idea of resurrection. And you see, the Jewish people pray this prayer three times a day, every day in the synagogue, and give honor to God as the one who brings life from the dead. And God brought life from the dead for the Jewish people. It looked like they were decimated. They were totally on the brink of annihilation. Genocide was close at hand, but God intervened. And then life from the dead took place. A new nation was born in a day. Israel was restored. And then even in Christian circles, suddenly there became a revisionist theology that began to think now maybe we need to reevaluate Judaism and not think that this is an old, terrible, dead, lifeless religion that has been entombed and destroyed by God, but rather maybe it has some life and viability in it and we need to look at, look at it all together again. And so we've had that kind of spirit that has been present in the world and in the Christian community and I would say within the Jewish community as well now for upwards of 60 years. You see, God has been at work bringing about restoration, bringing about renewal. Renewal is just not a word that applies to charismatic Christianity. Renewal has been taking place in, among the Jewish people. Renewal has been taking place in Israel. Renewal has been taking place in the world. God is at work, my friends. No, God is not dead. Yes, in history he's been a little bit temporarily unemployed, but he's not been dead. God is at work and he's busy bringing about his purposes. So we see what the church has said through history. We still have these continuing problems. We still have some who are anti-Semites. And let me tell you this, there will always be anti-Semites in the world. As long as the devil is still alive and well on planet earth, there will be anti-Semites. The only way that's going to end is when he's cast into the lake of fire. But he is destined for that end. But there's going to be anti-Semites. Yeah, they're going to crawl out from under their rocks. They're going to rear their ugly heads. They're going to spew the air with their venom. And then they're going to slink back into the background. That's just a fact. It's going to be. I would suggest that we don't need to spend all of our energies fighting those few anti-Semites. What we need to spend our energies doing is, is educating the millions of Christians around the world to the fact that their Christian faith is a Jewish religion. 
And if they come to understand that their faith is Jewish, that their God is the God of the Jews, that their Bible is the Bible of the Jews, that their Messiah is the Messiah of the Jews, then they will come to love not only the God of the Bible, but they'll come to love the land of the Bible, and they'll love the people of the Bible. And we'll have unqualified, unreserved, unequivocal support for the Jewish people and for the nation of Israel. So let's don't waste our energies on those anti-Semites crawling out from under their rocks. But in, we've heard all the things that the church has said. But what does God say? Again, I want to know what God says. What does God say? Romans 3, what advantage hath the Jew and what profit is there of circumcision? Much, every way. That's what God says about Jews and Judaism. There's all kinds of profit in every way for that understanding and that insight. God says in Malachi 3, chapter, chapter 3 and verse 6, I am Yahweh, I change not, therefore you sons of Jacob are not consumed. That's what God says. I'm God, I don't change, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. Israel is here and they're here to stay because God doesn't change. That's the most fundamental truth you ever need to come on as far as understanding theology is to know that God never changes. God is absolutely faithful to his covenants. His covenantal faithfulness never passes away. I am Yahweh, I change not. Romans 11, 11, have they stumbled, have the Jews stumbled that they should utterly and forever fall? God forbid, may it never be, that only through their fall salvation has come unto the Gentiles as a means by which God can provoke Israel to jealousy. Romans 11, all Israel shall be saved. This is what God says. All Israel shall be saved. For the gifts and the callings of God are irrevocable. Does that sound like God destroyed the Jews and Judaism from his economy? No. It's impossible for God to do that. So then, what shall we say? This is what God says. What shall we say? What shall we then say? I think we have to conclude that supersessionism, replacement theology, is a doctrine that is diabolical in nature and has been debilitating to the church and has been devastating to the Jewish community in history. So rather than looking around among us for a sufficient sarcophagus in which to entomb Judaism and or the Jewish people, I would suggest that we need to look around among us for a sufficient sarcophagus in which to entomb forever supersessionism, replacement theology. Get it out of the church. Root it out. Put the church back in context with the Jewish people and with Judaism so that we have a theological context of continuity 
And we have an anthropological context of continuity that we are not a new race called the church, but rather that we have become grafted in to God's family tree and that we have become naturalized citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. Not a new nation, not a new tree, the same old nation and the same old tree. God has just been merciful to us and said, y'all come. All of you Gentiles come in and be a part of my family tree. All of you Gentiles now come in and become naturalized citizens of the commonwealth of Israel. And I'm going to tell you what, we could all begin to sing this song. We can't do it today, but one day we can. When it comes to the land of Israel, we can sing this song. This land is your land. This land is my land. Hallelujah. Because the Messiah is coming, and when he's coming, he's not setting up his kingdom in New York or, or in, in Rome. He's going to establish his kingdom in Israel, in Israel, and Jerusalem is going to be the capital of the entire world. And God is going to bring together Jew and Gentile into one. So then, if that's what we say, what shall we now then do? I would suggest to you, in the words of Jesus, that if you have done it to the least of these, my brethren, you've done it unto me. We need to treat the brothers, the family of Jesus, in the proper way. We need to support unequivocally the Jewish people and the nation of Israel, standing behind them. Then we need to make this proclamation that one great Gentile woman who came to faith in the faith of Abraham made many years ago when she said, your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. And where you go, I'm going to go. And where you die, I'm going to die. That's a commitment to the end to the Jewish people, an irrevocable commitment. That's what we as the church need to make to our Jewish brothers and sisters. And I do say brothers and sisters, not distant cousins. Brothers and sisters, make that commitment we have come in to be a part of this family because one of your guys made good. His name was Jesus. And he created a way by which all of us could come in and be added to this family tree. He created a way where all of us could come into this nation, not as natural born citizens, but as naturalized citizens, yes, citizens nonetheless. And then... One day will come when all of us will be able to stand together in that glorious kingdom that will not pass away. And when we stand together with all the Jews of the saved of history, all the Gentiles the saved of history around the throne of the Son of Man, We'll join together in singing both the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Father, we thank you for your word and for clear insight 
into what you have spoken in your word and into our hearts. Now may we be an obedient people, not only hearers of the word, but doers also. And may we do with all diligence what you have called us to do. May we be the light of the world, bringing your light into the hearts of all mankind through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Praise the Lord.